0: Thank you for listening to Bullseye. Start your day tomorrow with Up First, the morning news podcast from NPR. Apple podcast reviewer Eve Bethel calls it concise and comprehensive. I listen to Up First every morning on my walk to work. It gives me a great summary of the top news stories during the day and the upcoming week. Wake up with Up First tomorrow morning on the NPR One app and wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
0: I'm Jesse Thorne. Look, Americans are great at a lot of stuff. We got some cool cars. We have hamburgers here. The St. Louis Arch I like a lot. But when it comes to comedy, Canada might have our number. List your top 10 favorite comedians, and I swear to God, probably half of them were born in Canada. What's up with that? Jay Baruchel's a comic and an actor, too. And wouldn't you know it? He's from Canada. He was born in Montreal.
2: And he has a theory about all this. We grow up um, versed in all the same source of material that you guys do. Plus, we grow up watching all these British shows that you guys don't. And then we have our own as well. And so that's that Canadian sense of humor. It's equal parts kind of uh, quintessential American and British. It's equal parts ad libby and Gilbert and Sullivan. This is Bullseye.
0: Coming up, Jay Baruchel talks with me about being Canadian and about how growing up in Montreal means that more often than not, you're getting the short end of the stick. Jay just directed his first feature film. It's called Goon, Last of the Enforcers. It's the sequel to a movie called Goon, which Jay wrote. And it's about hockey, which Jay loves. I mean, he loves to watch it and he also loves to write about
2: it sports is a stuff of great drama for a reason. Um, there aren't a ton of great office dramas.
0: Then I'll talk with Wallace Sean. He's probably best known as an actor. He's in The Princess Bride and Toy Story. He starred in My Dinner with Andre. That's something he does for a living and enjoys doing, but his heart is in writing. He's an acclaimed playwright, and for him, when those two worlds intersect, writing
3: and acting, he can make things kind of awkward. I realize that most people who meet me, they think, gosh, I'm meeting that funny little guy who's an actor. And then I say, no, no, you don't understand. I'm a very serious writer who you should take very seriously. And they sort of look at me and think, oh, I see. Well, that funny guy thinks that he's also a writer and that I should take him seriously. How bizarre. Plus
0: Nick Lowe, singer and songwriter, will tell you about the dumb, goofy country song that changed his life. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Jay Baruchel's an actor. Maybe you've seen him on the FXX show Man Seeking Woman. He starred in the How to Train Your Dragon movies as the voice of Hiccup. He also starred on Judd Apatow's cult classic sitcom Undeclared. This year, Jay directed his first-ever feature-length movie. It's called Goon, Last of the Enforcers. It's a sequel to Goon, another cult classic, and one that Jay helped write and co-starred in. The movies tell the story of a really specific kind of hockey player, an enforcer, the guy who, you know, whose job it is to have everyone's back, and specifically to beat up whoever needs to get beaten up on the other team. The enforcer's name is Doug Glatt, and he's played wonderfully by Sean William Scott. Doug was originally a bouncer. Then, after he handles a fight, he gets recruited by a pro hockey team and leads them to glory. In the next movie, directed by Jay, Scott's character's hurt. He's retired. He's taken an office job. But it's hard for him to adjust, so he tries to make a comeback. In this scene from Goon, Last of the Enforcers, Glatt's meeting with his mentor and former nemesis, Ross Ray. He's hoping that Ray can help him get back on the ice.
3: You train me? Train you know what? Teach me to fight with my left. (laughs) Teach me to skate better. What the f*** do I know about skating,
2: Doug? See what I do in there? We can train another time if you're not able to right now. There's a restaurant nearby that sells hot dogs. We could just eat those instead. Hot dogs. Yeah, it's like a sausage sandwich. I know what a f- hot dog looks is. Like a
0: <laughs> Jay. Welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. Um, I know that you're a really passionate hockey fan. I indeed. Uh, are you someone who would prefer to see hockey with or without goons?
2: Oh yeah, uh, with very much so. I, I am I am firmly entrenched on the uh, that side of the debate. I was that's that's the hockey I was raised to appreciate. It's an intrinsic part of it. I am upset, and I will say I'm I'm not a big
0: hockey fan, but as a football fan, yeah, I'm upset that I've had to deal with the moral consequences mm-hmm. of being a football fan sure. recently. Like the whole point of being a sports fan is not to deal with actual moral to substitute air sats moral consequences <laughs> yes. for actual moral consequences. Yes. yes. And I feel like uh, – You feel guilty now. Now I feel bad no. because it's
2: everyone is ruining their lives for my <laughs> entertainment. Right. Right. Except, yes. Uh, but I don't know how many of them would have it any other way. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's the question. That's the question. That's the thing. And that's the sort of big kind of true gray area. And I don't know how many narratives kind of reflect this. But it's like it's more about smoking a pack of cigarettes. You know what's harmful and you elect to. And so I think it's about making sure that everyone has the appropriate amount of info and the right info for the context, but then they should put that context themselves and they should decide.
0: I think. Well, once I interviewed uh, Terry Crews, who's mm-hmm. a brilliant comic actor, but also played in the NFL for a little while, right. and one of the things that he told me about playing in the NFL was, he told me very sincerely, very directly, with the exception possibly of a few quarterbacks, everyone who chooses to play in the nfl is broken in some way right um and right. i don't just mean physically broken. Sure, i right. mean sure. like emotionally yeah. like their life is broken yeah right and the nfl is essentially just like a place to go to try and fail to fill holes inside them related Holy. to their fathers or whatever you know okay. what i mean
2: hell okay <laughs> that's <laughs> not to put too fine a point on it yeah,
0: right <laughs> I mean the second part was was my sort of interpretation <laughs> right, right, of what he was right, saying right. but
2: no yeah. oh, no 100% but I don't know that there's I think there's uh those type of people in every non traditional job I think actors, musicians, find me a functioning stand-up comic who's like a normal person. You know what I mean? Like, I think there's just something uh, the same way that they say every actor is like someone desperate for attention and approval and didn't get enough love in high school and all that same shit. We're all s- steered on to these sort of yeah, bespoke career choices, and I think it's all... Yeah, it, 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 there's a common thread in all of it. People ask me about comics all the time because I know a lot of comics,
0: and I think there's a, there's a sequence in your movie mm-hmm. where Sean William Scott's character, the goon, goes and tries to work at an insurance company. Mm-hmm. And the problem for someone who's that driven... Uh, to do something like play hockey is that there's no there's no way to do that at an insurance company. Not just no. to not play hockey, that's but right. there's like the same intensity and obsession that makes someone a successful artist mm-hmm. or a successful uh, athlete. Mm-hmm. The kind of focus and time that's required that just isn't reflected in normal life.
2: No, there's no there's no answer to it. And you, it's it's hard to mean what you mean in the context of a game to find that in an office do you know what i mean like that like that's just the sports is a stuff of great drama for a reason um there aren't a ton of great office dramas <laughs> so um yeah 100 percent and i and i think it begs a very interesting question um which is like what do you do when, when your calling is is with you like like you know so many people don't have a calling Most people, I think, don't. And if you're one of the few who finds what you're quote unquote meant to do, well, that's a weight off your shoulders. What a beautiful thing. But what if that thing that you're meant to do is finite and in fact is hurting you and you up in a big way, you're going to have to make some pretty heavy decisions at a certain point. Um, Let's hear another scene from Goon, Last of the Enforcers. Terrific.
0: Uh, So uh, basically, Sean William Scott plays uh, Doug the Thug Glatt, who is a goon from the first film, Goon. Um, And it's his job on the ice, essentially, almost exclusively to beat people up. And and he has what looks like it's going to be a career-ending injury in a fight on the ice Um, and has to take a job because his wife is pregnant. And so uh, this is him having a beer with his teammates who are now his former teammates.
3: So, Dougie, how's that new job going?
2: Oh, it's so fun. Yeah, there's there's all these documents, you know. I get to bring a thermos to work, which keeps my food hot and cold. Sometimes I put hamburgers in there. It's up to me. (laughs) He's he's, he's psyched whenever he can exert any agency.
0: Uh, I think uh, one of the nice things about these movies is that Sean William Scott is such a winning guy. He has such a twinkle yeah, in his eye. It does. Um and he's also I mean extraordinarily handsome while also being a little goofy looking. Yep. Um that he can carry the lead in a film while still being an almost like Homer Simpson level dumb person. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's it's amazing. We kept thinking we'd hit the ceiling, you know. Like it's like there's no way the audience is going to buy that he doesn't know how to spell his name t- <laughs> correctly. <laughs> <And he laughs> writes Doug V U G, and it's. But I I assume I'd like to think we can get away with all that stuff because as arch as he is a character, because it's not you know he's it's uh, not a documentary. Uh, it's, it's a character in an opera, and and um. But I think it's still there's um. For whatever reason, your bullshit detector doesn't go off because I think it's it's it comes from an earnest place and and he's playing guys he's playing a big version but he's playing a version of very real men and uh, now no no hockey player I've ever met is quite as. Um, yeah, dumb, as Doug is. But, but but they're dumb, and you'd like them to come talk to you about that. I didn't say that. <laughs> so,
0: hey, no, quite the opposite. all ob- you're saying is that <laughs> hockey players, the bigger they are, the dumber they are. That's, that they're is— They're just a
2: bunch of big, dumb, dumb. goobers. I, I don't recall— And if they have a problem with that, they should talk to you. Well, this is NPR— I did not say that. No. Um I was there's there's okay, look, look you 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 root for somebody um honest and uh, and kind and uh and it helps it makes it even more palatable if they don't know if they're never as smart as the situation they find themselves in. Was it intentional to make both
0: this film and the first Goon movie as brutal as they are?
2: Yes. Yes.
0: Why did you want to make uh, a, what is ultimately a pretty light
2: comedy uh, so intensely violent? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I I can't speak to the aesthetic of the first one because I didn't direct it. My friend Michael did, Michael Dowse. I, I mean I had a large – although he did film the s*** that we wrote. So. Um, but it was like, it was a decision we made. It was, we wanted to make a puck opera. Yes, it's funny and it's uh, accessible that way. But we wanted to sneak our kind of everything else in on people. And so I think the sort of substance sneaks up on people in our movies. And because like the constant thing I hear is, I didn't expect to care as much, you know? And 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 the violence is part of that. But mind you, we don't ever depict any one fight the same way, right? Like there are different types of violence depending on what the fight is. Some of our fights have a a goofy or comedic function. Some of them are meant to be 100% purely negative. Some of them are both supposed to be Stressful and engaging like a classic movie fight where you hope your hero triumphs. But all we were trying to do is take these ingredients that, to us, um, we found the most, what made the most interesting parts of watching hockey and just heighten them to an operatic cinematic extent.
0: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Jay Baruchel. He wrote and directed the new movie Goon, Last of the Enforcers. You play uh, as an actor often, not in the Goon movies where you play... (laughs) Uh, The mook to end all mooks, basically. (laughs) Um, Yep. Your character, I saw you describe (laughs) your character in the Goon movies as being like a caricature of the... Nineteen-year-old Bostonians who would come to Montreal to get drunk. That's
2: precisely right.
0: Which, I mean, I can imagine the backwards baseball caps. Oh, I mean, buddy. like that situation. Every
2: Patty and Sully in all of Massachusetts. It's very vivid. Yeah, I've been to a Red Sox game. Okay, oh, God, God, God um, bless you.
0: So uh, I know, I know that kind of thing you're talking about. But generally, you're called upon to play uh, skinny nebbishes yeah. on account of you being skinny and nebbishy. Yeah. Uh, aesthetically, visually looking. (laughs) Um, You were the star of uh, a real favorite TV show of mine of the last few years called Man Seeking Woman. Oh, wicked. Thanks, man. Which was uh, uh, almost a sketch comedy show set in the mind of... Scared, nebbish, looking for love. <laughs> yeah. Um. Wherein <laughs> every kind of fantastical scenario played itself out on the grandest stage possible. But it was always born of something
2: super unclumsy and intimate.
0: Yeah. So I, I'm going to play a clip. Uh, he he has this best friend who's played by Eric Andre, who is a, uh, I mean, if anyone's ever seen the Eric Andre show or any of his work, like <laughs> he's like the most compelling guy in the world. Yep. Um, and his character never has any trouble. Uh, meeting women or finding girls, and mm-hmm. uh, we see everything sort of through your characters' eyes, Jay, yep. and um, the fantastical scenarios play out from there. And in this one, we sort of find out the fantastical version of why Eric Andre's character can always meet chicks. All right, all
1: right. One second.
0: Sup, girl? What's up? See you on the
2: dance floor. Can't wait. See? I, I've never seen that before. In my life, your, your eyes turn into these spinning- Spinning hypnotic spirals. Right, spiral Well,
4: how did you learn to do that? What the same way everybody learns. The day I hit puberty, a wizard appeared and taught me. Did that not happen to you? No. Are you sure? A tall guy,
2: pointy hat, he had a long white beard. Yes, I know what a wizard looks like. I'm saying I've never met one. Hold on, wait a minute, stop. If you can't do spiral how do you hit on girls? I, I don't know. I just walk up to them and say random stuff.
0: <laughs> that's good
2: stuff right there that's some classic Simon Rich
0: well yes well Simon is who is the creator of the show one of the most brilliant and funny people that I've ever met, yeah. and also one Same. of the few who are
2: small, like obviously smaller and frailer than you are. Yeah, I know. No, I know. He's tiny. I said, I, I, I'm the alpha male frame next to him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> part of the reason I said yes to the show. But how how do you feel about the fact that so
0: much of your career, starting with Undeclared, the show that uh, gave you much of your career, uh-huh. um, has been playing? Uh, confused and afraid adolescents, no matter what age they may be. Yeah,
2: uh, I've got. In a, if if my great raison d'être was to be an actor, I might have issue with. I might take issue with it. But it never was, and I I love and respect this craft, and it's afforded me and uh, and my mother and my sister lives we never would have otherwise had. It it took us out of like. We weren't unpoor, okay? And so um, we we went into another strata because of this. And I have consistently been able to work since I was 12, and I'm 35 now. And most actors, less than 20% can feed themselves off acting. So I've been able to string it for over a decade. And for me, all I've ever wanted to do is write and direct horror movies and action movies. And acting was always a means of being on set and getting to work with people and learn the craft. So this is all to say that... I'm fine with it because it's not like, um, oh, I don't have the career that I'm hoping for. I, I My ambitions lie outside of acting. And so I'm just psyched to have been able to do it as long as I've done it. And and I'm psyched to do the things that I've done. Um, but, but yeah, I suppose it would bug me more if, if I was trying to do this forever.
0: I want to play something from Undeclared, which was the show that – um, brought you to American audiences, certainly. I mean, Canadian audiences already knew you from uh, Popular Science for Kids, <laughs> the long-running Canadian children's television show yep. which you co-hosted. I did for one season. Um, Popular Mechanics for kids. Popular mechanic. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, I, I, we didn't pull any clips for that out of thank you. respect to you. <laughs> Thanks, man. Um, so uh, your character on the show Undeclared, which was a one-season sitcom. Mm-hmm. Um, but a really wonderful one was a college freshman mm-hmm. uh, who kind of gets to college and is trying to figure it out yep. and uh it was in some ways the kind of uh slightly sitcomier uh, college analog to freaks and geeks yeah. in high school yep. and uh, Among the cast of the show uh, were Seth Rogen and Jason Siegel and um, some other folks who we 've known yeah, the the lot of you have worked together in mm-hmm. one capacity or other for fifteen years now. Um, and so anyway, in this clip, uh, your character, Jay, whose name is Steven, is pumping himself up on his way to college. Oh,
2: God. 60% of all people meet their spouses at college. That means my future wife could be, like, seated right beside me. You and a girl. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, why not? Exactly, because, because these girls at college, they, they don't know me. They don't know who I am. Yeah, they don't know that you threw up on the bus in fifth grade. Exactly. That you had to have your finger reattached after that wood shop. The point is, I'm tall and handsome and and I've gained weight and I've like finally got a fashion sense. Man, it's like the beginning of a whole new era. <laughs> <That's> so stupid. <laughs> that that exercise machine I'm on as well is a great sight gag that you're missing out on.
0: <laughs> I think I think it's rare. To find someone, especially in the world of stand-up comedy where Judd Apatow came from, who is as committed to uh, facilitation of creativity as Judd Apatow is. Mm -hmm. I mean Judd Apatow is a talented creator in his own right and has made some really great movies himself. Mm -hmm. But a huge part of his life is dedicated to uh, finding what's really great about other people's creativity as Mm -hmm. a producer. Um, and I wonder what you learned from having had that experience on what was a really great show um when you were a very young actor
2: yeah, I mean it was especially for me coming out of um not just kids t v but canadian kids t v the uh, the idea that you might be able to just make something up and that would be on television is crazy and um so um being afforded that kind of liberty uh, and creativity uh, was kind of really cool. You just got to paint with all sorts of colors. And it might not – might none of it might end up in there, but you're still allowed the chance to do it. It was kind of – it spoiled me in a way. Um, you know. I, and some other people have this, this sort of similar process. Like Stiller came up with Apatow on The Stiller Show, and so they each have kind of – cousins of the same process basically Um, seems like a lot of people got a lot out of working with uh, Gary
0: Shandling as well big time on Larry Sanders
2: big time yeah no there's something in the water in that era of um, because that's also my favorite SNL as well and and um, look they're all still going you know and uh, and also there was a real snobby thing on our set where we were all convinced that we were making the best show on television and, um, so, so, you know, we were, we, we had a very kind of Johnny Marr, uh, approach to the whole thing. Uh, we just thought we were better than everybody, or Godspeed your Black Emperors, maybe closer. And, um, and so when we got canceled, we like, yeah, of course. <laughs> and, um, uh, and what's so neat though, is that like, when I watch, I don't watch it often, but if ever I sit down and watch a bit of Undeclared, I see, to me, it is, uh, the Melvins to current comedy's Nirvana kind of. You know, I see the type of the rhythm and the music we're speaking and, and the types of things we're making jokes about, and the types of things we're mining for stories, was sort of uh, there, were, uh, there was no precedent before us. Like, I remember literally, the biggest issue for Fox is that they didn't, we didn't have a laugh track. How would people know that we're a comedy if there's no laughing? And I know that sounds crazy to anyone listening now who didn't grow up in the 90s, but, like, there weren't any other really half hour single camera comedies you know we kind of broke new ground and um and like you know we like many like 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 many sort of trailblazers um we paid a kind of crummy price for it and then uh but but a whole another generation were kind of inspired by what we did and um <laughs> and fared far better than we did one of the
0: things that i really love about comedy in the last 15 years that comes substantially from uh, the well of uh, Larry Sanders leading mm-hmm. into Freaks and Geeks and Undeclared is the extent to which it is driven by emotion,
5: mm-hmm.
0: um, very yeah. sincere emotion, rather than situations, clever jokes yeah. or or weird a situations. General anger. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. No, agreed. Agreed. It was like they we people kind of clued into something that. Um, yeah, that people are funny and people are made of emotions and therefore emotions would be funny as well. Um but it that's a um that's a hard thing to eventually get to, right? Like that that to me is like the sort of uh, another music reference. <laughs> the Joy Division approach to punk, which is introspective and not about like um Margaret Thatcher or whatever—it's much more. It's 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 describing Kierkegaard and the you know concentration camps and uh, what it's like to have epilepsy, <laughs> you know. And 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 we had comedy had versions of that, but it always sounded like someone reading their diary entries, or they would, or it was how the world is and i'm this great sort of anti-hero you know but it was it was still the same kind of setup and what i i think has been very good for american comedy um is the british influence that we always grew up with in canada you know like and i and i suspect that's one of the reasons why canadians have always been overrepresented in american comedy is we grow up um versed in all the same source of material that you guys do plus we grow up watching all these british shows that you guys don't and then we have our own as well and so that's that canadian sense of humor it's equal parts kind of uh quintessential american and british it's equal parts ad libby and gilbert and sullivan and i think that all of these things have come to a point where people can be funny and a, and a scene can be just about what somebody's feeling yeah so i i think it's a really lovely thing that was bound to happen eventually
0: we'll have more from jay baruchel after a break coming up everything you need to know about Montreal from one of the city's favorite sons. Spolzai from maximumfun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and this message comes from 2020, where creatives get inspiring authentic stock photos, unlike traditional staged stock photos. 2020 has millions of real-world images your audience will actually engage with, all under a simple royalty-free license. Today, 2020 is offering Bullseye listeners a seven-day free trial of five photos. Monthly subscription begins after seven days. To start your trial, go to 2020.com slash Bullseye. I'm Linda Holtz. And I'm Stephen Thompson. There's more stuff to watch and read these days than any one person can get to. That's why we make Pop Culture Happy Hour.
5: Twice a week, we sort through the nonsense, share reactions, and give you the lowdown on what's worth your precious time and what's not. Find Pop Culture Happy Hour on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Jay Baruchel. He's an actor. He's also a comic. He wrote and directed the new sports movie, Goon, Last of the Enforcers. You're uh, from Montreal. Yep. And... I think people who haven't been to Montreal have ideas of what Montreal is. Mm -hmm. What do you think people are right and wrong about about the city of Montreal?
2: Um, Yeah, I think they're right about it being um, (laughs) the snobbiest, leftiest, artsiest uh, town in North America. Like this whole sort of cult of personality around Portland is uh, is utter nonsense. <laughs> Nobody's ever been to Mile End then. <laughs> and we were doing it long before it was in vogue. So that's all, that's all a thing. Um, it is very European. Uh, it is highly romantic. Uh, the food is as good as everyone thinks. What I think they don't get is how multicultural it is, um, that half the city is French, not the entire city. So the province is in – it's in. Quebec is mostly French. Um, there 's like seven million people eighty nine percent of whom are French speakers the almost the entirety of the Anglo population of Quebec is in Montreal. So half of that city is uh, a Montreal that never gets reported because it's not sexy and interesting. And it's underreported within Canada as well. Like I've often said back home that if you watched English language movies from the rest of Canada, you'd never know that any English communities existed in Montreal. If you watched French movies from Quebec, you'd never know that we were there. I've been able to make two in my life, two Anglo-Canadian movies. I also don't think people realize um, that it's... (laughs) These two forms in this town that seem completely uh, antithetical but for whatever reason have found a home. It is at turns incredibly – yeah, like I said, um, artsy and uh, and all that stuff. But – it is also an incredibly blue-collar town, and it is still it is by far the most crooked city in North America. There are corruption inquiries every single year. Um, we, we are what the Carabinieri in Italy called uh, the key to the lock that is uh, New York. We, we are positioned perfectly above Manhattan, all the crime families there, um, and with far less lax than American customs. And so uh, Sicily goes through Montreal to get to New York. I, you've, like, had a full-on TED Talk. Thanks, man. Yeah, we were uh-huh. ready to go on Montreal. Well, I crime and loaded Montreal crime history is a passion of mine. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Jay, thank you for taking all this time to be on Bullseye. It was really great to get to meet you and talk to you. Really? Thanks, man. Thank you for having me. I'm, yeah, really? Uh,
2: pre- no, I, pre- no, for real. I appreciate that. That's so nice. Thanks, man. It was lovely to be here.
0: Jay Barrish His movie, Goon, Last of the Enforcers, is in select theaters and on VOD September 1st. You can check out the first film in the franchise, Goon, which has a well-earned reputation as a cult classic. Both of them are genuine and funny and also spectacularly violent. I want you to be prepared for that. A lot of blood in these movies, but they're funny. Time now for the song that changed my life. Our guest, Nick Lowe. Nick Lowe is a power pop singer from just outside London. Cruel to be kind, the song you're hearing right now, is probably his biggest hit single. It's really, really catchy. Lowe is also a master behind the scenes. He's produced and written for so many people Elvis Costello, Johnny Cash, The Damned, Rod Stewart. This summer and fall, he's reissuing a handful of his records from the middle of his catalog, starting at 1982's Nick the Knife. Like a lot of musicians, Nick can track his love of pop music back to a pretty early age. And for him, it goes back over half a century to when he was growing up on a British air base in Jordan, listening to his mom's country and Western records.
5: As a child, I lived in Jordan for a period because my dad was in the uh, Royal Air Force. Really looking back now, it was the end of the British Empire, you know, and but there were still some vestiges of the former glory days. Being in the forces, you were never that far from a, an American radio station as well. You could pick up the American forces network as well, and so at that time, the music from the United States couldn't have been any more different to the stuff that we were served up as English kids. The singers were better, it swung harder, it was, I could tell, even at that age. And I was starting to get interested in, in music then. My, and my mother had a number of long-playing records. The usual stuff that you had back then, Sinatra, Peggy Lee, Doris Day, and for some reason she also had two 10-inch albums of Tennessee Ernie Ford... Well, I played these over and over again. I loved all of the songs, actually, but the one that really s- stuck with me was Fatback, Louisiana, USA.
1: They got a song about Cincinnati and Tennessee But nobody's ruled about the town that's heaven to me
5: Tennessee, Ernie Ford, uh, I didn't know this then, I just thought he had a very exotic name. These artists had these... Incredible names, you know, Howling Wolf, you know. I, I I couldn't imagine what this guy looked like. You know, I could hear him, you know, but I couldn't imagine what he looked like. Furlin Husky, you know. I'd never heard of anyone called Furlin Husky. You know, everyone I knew was called Graham and sort of Dennis. And they just sounded so cool.
1: But they're handy when you're hungry cos they're built out of grips. But the
5: whole track, even to my seven-year-old ears just swings so hard. It sounded like a kid's song for grown-ups. I'd never heard anything like that. It sounded really sophisticated, but it was clearly fun, and everyone involved in the thing was having a ball. That was a brand-new experience to me. Everything's great on it. The groove is so swinging. That drum, you know the little drum... Whack, you know, that crops up. Fat back whack
1: in Fat Back Louisiana. USA, that
5: features in another Tennessee Ernie record called uh, shotgun Billy boogie. The the Billy the drum copies a, the sound of a shotgun and they, clearly that it was such a success they decided to use it in as many many songs as they could.
1: You're gonna get a ham gravy that'll curl your hair. They pour a quart of brandy over a ham and add a pint of gin and let it simmer.
5: The um the lyric as well. Well, to my seven-year-old ears. It might as well have been in Urdu for all I understood it. I couldn't make head or tail of it and I occasionally I'd get a I'd catch a line like I loved the, the line about listen boys when you're ill you get a black-eyed pea instead of a pill.
1: and listen boys when you're ill. You get a black instead of a pill. And I
5: like the thing about instead pouring a bottle of brandy and gin, a gin over a ham
1: in the pan then they drink up all the juice and throw the ham away in fat back Louisiana
5: I USA. didn't know what I'd never didn't know what grits were or any of these I knew it was about food I knew the whole thing was about food but it was the kind of food that I'd never heard of I've always liked humor in lyrics especially when it's um Allied with a, a serious musical approach, the, the contradiction has, al- has always interested me and, and Tennessee Ernie always he had that going in spades really. <laughs> My relationship to this song uh, has changed in one respect, that I like it even more than I did when I was seven. This song was the, the nearest I heard to rock and roll at that time. It opened the door for what came next, Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, Elvis Presley. This song preceded it. It totally opened the door for me. And, and when I first heard it, it seemed to make complete sense, even though I didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> In
1: back, back, Louisiana USA.
0: Nick Lowe on the song that changed his life. Fat Back Louisiana, USA" by Tennessee Ernie Ford. Nick's label, Yep Rock Records, is re-releasing a bunch of his albums this summer and fall. We'll have a link for you to buy them on the Bullseye page at MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Wallace Shawn. He's probably best known as a character actor, one of my favorites. Uh, He's had over 180 screen credits he was in clueless the princess bride he's had regular roles on gossip girl and crossing jordan you probably know him as the t-rex from toy Story.
3: hey who moved my doodle pad way over here ah! how you doing rex were you scared tell me honestly i was close to being scared that time oh i'm going for fearsome here but i just don't feel it i think i'm just coming off as annoying
0: but when he's not acting, he's also an Obie Award-winning playwright and the author of several books. His latest is called Night Thoughts. It's an essay, meditation really, about politics, morality, and privilege. Wallace is here with me now. Wallace Sean, welcome to Bullseye. So excited to have you on the show.
3: Great to be here. Is this really what you think about at night? Well, obviously, I'm a regular in some ways, regular bourgeois person. And I think about uh, the errands that I haven't completed, and I think about the emails I haven't returned. But I suppose I do think about the things that are in my book uh, quite a bit. They do intrude.
0: I was thinking about talking to you, and I did, and I literally only realized the irony of that this moment. Like last night, I was it my 3-year-old came into my bedroom and woke me up just as i was about to fall asleep and i didn't fall asleep for another 45 minutes and most of that time i was thinking about
3: <laughs> i was thinking about the fact that today i was going to be talking to you well this is very flattering and i'm deeply touched i think that
0: i rarely think about big questions at night i think about little anxieties much more than i think about big anxieties i mean a- as we record this y- yesterday the president did some saber rattling um with north korea who are apparently now a nuclear power and i didn't think about that at all i was mostly thinking about whether i was going to embarrass myself today in some way so i'm impressed that you're able to think about anything that actually matters you know, when you're in that quiet thinking space, I, I'm just consumed by my personal anxieties in those times.
3: Well, this is our life as, as uh, conscious human beings, that we uh, have a self that is, uh, you know, uh, preoccupied with uh, our own bodies and what may happen to them and what's going to happen you know, in the next 24 hours. But at the same time, you know, we do have an awareness that there are other people out there and that uh, there's a world out there. I think that we may have a greater awareness of it than uh, people in the 18th century. You know, we're hooked into the whole planet. And that's uh, something we can't fix. We are hooked into it. I mean, we can't uh, change that. Do you see it as something that needs fixing? Well, I just mean that it, it uh, in terms of uh, leading a tranquil life, even in some ways being uh, happy or cheerful, it's uh, obviously difficult or, or impossible if you're aware of of uh, things that are happening on the other side of the world because they're uh, so violent and bloody and sickening and people are in agony. So I think probably if you were uh, a farmer in the Middle Ages, you know, you didn't worry about uh, what was happening in Syria. I mean, you worried about what was happening on your farm and there might have been a lot of agony going on there. And maybe uh, there were neurotic people like ourselves, even in the Middle Ages, and they worried about the small details of their lives, I suppose. You got a Fulbright when you
0: were uh, a very young man to, to, I think, teach in India, before India was as developed as it is today. Why did you go and do that and what did you think you were going to experience when you agreed to do that?
3: Well, at that time, I was about 21 and I uh, felt that I might pursue a life as a uh, perhaps some kind of international civil servant. Maybe I would work at the UN, I thought. In any case, perhaps I would help human beings become less miserable. It's
0: Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Wallace Shawn, the actor, playwright, and author. Did you go because you imagined yourself in a life of, um, like, direct service, or did you imagine yourself in a life as a guy who hangs out in Geneva, a lot and speaks French, the international language with other people <laughs> who
3: speak French, the international language, you know what I mean? I do. I, I don't think it was clear in my mind. I think I mean because sometimes they even thought, hey, I'll run for office. I'll be a politician. And sometimes I thought, well, maybe I'll be an economist and I'll get an advanced degree. I actually was never smart enough to be an economist, but I entertained the thought. I think probably I pictured myself speaking French in Geneva if I had to pick an image. I I think I did. So how did your
0: experience of going to India compare with what you
3: you imagined you were going to get out of it as a 21-year-old? Well... I was quite a miserable person at that time when I got on the airplane to India. What kind of miseries? Psychological, personal. I had no expectation that I would have any happiness in my life. I thought I would just be miserable but maybe helpful. And uh, I started feeling very good when I was in India. I liked what I was experiencing almost indescribably much. I was so happy there. I felt very, very comfortable with the people that I met. And the way that an awful lot of people lived seemed, uh, well, frankly, incredibly enviable to me. And uh, I sort of you know dressed in a white kurta pajama and i ate with my hands and i thought wow i've really never experienced happiness like this it's great here and yes every now and then i would notice that a lot of people were suffering they were sick they had unbelievable problems But the idea that I'd previously had was that maybe with my help, India could become like the United States. And when I was there, I fairly quickly, after a few weeks, began to think, that's not the way it should go. You know, I I don't really want to uh, dream of an India that would become just like the United States. And I weirdly started to think about the problems that we had back at home, which in my mind had a, well, it was, there was something wrong with the way we thought and felt, and there was something wrong in the human soul of the Americans, and I gave myself permission to change my life plan, really. Uh, I, I... previously had thought it was immoral to be an artist of any kind to use that sort of stupid word artist and in india i sort of decided you know maybe that could be helpful in its own way maybe the people at home need help maybe if i became some kind of a writer i could pitch in in that
0: area Had you previously thought that art was, whatever, an act of
3: self-indulgence or something like that? Uh, Yes, and I still think that. And I'm not sure that I was on the right track when I decided that I really ought to give myself permission to be a writer. But yes, up until the age of 16 or so, I'd always assumed that I would be some kind of artistic person and maybe a writer. But then for several years, I turned against the aesthetic, the romantic, that type of thing. So somehow India drove me back to being the way I was when I was, uh, say, 15. And I'm still like that, but I'm still wondering, you know, I know I've had a lot of fun doing artistic Things, Uh, if you can call them that. It's a shorthand. Let's just say it's been fun to write and put on plays and do things like that. But, Wallace, uh,
0: I'm going to give you full permission to use the word artist through the rest of (laughs) the conversation and not feel bad about
3: it. Well, I think it's a pretentious word that doesn't really mean anything, that assumes that, you know, a painter has the same goals and feelings as a writer and as a, as a composer. I mean, it's, it's a little bit—it's uh, not my favorite word. But thank you for letting me use it because it does—it it, it can make a person less long-winded.
0: We'll have more with Wallace Shawn after a quick break. Plus, I'll tell you about a video game that breaks new ground in first-person storytelling. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from New West Records and the new Lily Hyatt album Trinity Lane, an intensely personal autobiographical tour de force produced by Michael Trent of Shovels and Rope. The album combines Hyatt's love of 90s alt rock with urgent backbeats, distressed guitars and a distinctly Americana twang. Hyatt says love will take you to the darkest places, but also the most honest places if you let it. Available now. More info at lilyhyatt.com. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We'll get back to my conversation with Wallace Shawn in a minute. But first, let me tell you about Pop Rocket. On Bullseye, I interview folks who are making great culture stuff. On Pop Rocket, they talk about it. It's a weekly panel discussion about pop culture that is brilliant and fascinating and hilarious. This week, a special guest host... Karen Tongson. She's a music writer and a university professor. Hey, Karen, what's popping on Pop Rocket this week.
3: Hey, Jesse. This week, we're coming upon the 20th anniversary of Princess Diana's death. Uh, so listen to us reflect on, talk about the legacy of
1: England's Rose and her impact on popular culture then and now.
0: Sounds good, Karen. Pop Rocket. Get it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the actor, playwright, and author Wallace Shawn. His latest book, Night Thoughts, is out now. Do you think of yourself as an actor?
3: Not really. I mean, i mean, I mean, life tends to be a bit foreshortened in one's memory. So really, the earlier years seem longer, and the later years seem shorter. So, to me, I was a writer from an early age, and it grew naturally out of my life, and I still think of myself as a writer. And then I I sort of think, oh, well, then there were these very quick years that came later in which I, I took on another thing that Weirdly, somebody offered me of being an actor, and I've, I've done a bit of that recently. I mean, I know that I was much more successful, strangely, as an actor than as a writer. So, I realize that most people who meet me, if they know me at all, they, they think, gosh, I'm meeting that funny little guy who's an actor, And then I say, no, no, you don't understand. I'm a very serious writer who you should take very seriously. And they sort of look at me and think, oh, I see. Well, that funny guy thinks that he's also a writer and that I should take him seriously. How bizarre.
0: Are you the kind of person who is comfortable not being intensely judgmental of your own work? um, Or are you someone who sees your own work in terms of its
3: flaws? You know, it's embarrassing to uh, say it, but because of the way I grew up, knowing writers who were well-known and respected, I may have had an exaggerated idea of... The normal amount of respect that one could um, acquire. I mean, the, <laughs> I may have had a, a false idea of how much a writer might expect to be respected or liked. And so, obviously, there are many people who would think I've received too much uh, admiration and respect for my plays. Uh, And because some people think they're worthless. And I've always felt I've received an inadequate amount of admiration and respect. And so it's been up to me to be on the side of my work. Uh, In other words, it's been uh, neglected or criticized a lot. I felt, so I have to like it. I'm one of the people who has to promote it somehow to myself. So this is in the background of the fact that, uh, quite honestly, I've tended to have a higher opinion of my own work than other people have had. Uh, And I've tended to enjoy my own work. Uh, Horrible to admit it. Now, I don't let my work be seen by anybody until I've spent many years trying to make it as good as I can make it. So obviously, in the process of writing, there's a lot of self-criticism and destruction of pages that seemed okay yesterday, but upon second thought, you sort of think they don't make the grade. So the kind of nastiness toward my own work, that goes on in private. But by the time something of mine has been performed or published, I tend to enjoy it. Of course, there are days, I think, for any writer when he looks at his own work and is is horrified or finds it incredibly boring or unbearable. But most of the time, I don't. Let's listen
0: to you, Wally, in uh, The Princess Bride from 1987. You're the bad guy, this guy, or one of the bad guys, this guy named Vizini who kidnaps the princess, whose name is Buttercup. So in this scene, Buttercup's boyfriend or beloved, uh, Wesley, comes to save her from you. And they get engaged in this Conversation before uh, Vizini challenges him to uh, a battle of wits.
3: If you wish her dead, by all means, keep moving forward. Let me explain. There's nothing to explain. You're trying to kidnap what I've rightfully stolen. Perhaps an arrangement can be reached. There will be no arrangement, and you're killing her. Well, if there can be no arrangement, then we are at an impasse. I'm afraid so. I can't compete with you physically, and you're no match for my brains. You're that smart. Let me put it this way. Have you ever heard of Plato, Aristotle, Socrates? Yes. Morons. Really? In that case, I challenge you to a battle of wits. For the princess? To the death? I accept. (laughs) Yeah, you do a really great job. (laughs) <laughs> Gosh, well, you're kind. Thank you.
0: I, I watched that movie at my uh, cabin uh, maybe a month and a half ago, and I hadn't seen it since I was, you know, 23 years old or something like that, although I watched it a million times uh, as a kid. And I I was worried that I wouldn't like it as an adult because, you know, I was worried I would see the seams or whatever. And I was really happy that I loved it as much as a 37-year-old dad as I had loved it as a, or almost as much probably, but pretty close, as I had loved it as a, you know, 11-year-old browsing the shelves at Blockbuster Video. Um, But it must be an odd thing to have touched people's lives so deeply in this. I mean, you know, another one of the most important uh, roles you've had in your career as an actor was in Clueless, you know, another really wonderful, very down-the-middle uh, mainstream entertainment. It must be odd to have touched people's lives so deeply with something that is so incidental to the art that is closest to your
3: heart. Well, I don't know if Clueless is is down the middle. I mean, it's Jane Austen. It has some uh, subtle thoughts in there. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I live in a somewhat different world from the world that a lot of people who like movies uh, live in. I mean, how else to put it? I mean, I films are different today. American films are very different today. But I don't go to see the big blockbusters that make millions of dollars, billions. You know, I go to concerts and listen to chamber music. I don't do the same things that a lot of people do. It's not my world, really. And yet, in a certain sense, I I am one of the creators of that world. I've been in a lot of movies, and uh, they are important to a lot of people. And it it is uh, strange to me. I have tried to not do movies that uh, I would personally despise or think are making the world a worse place. I've tried, if I am able to discern that something is sickening, I don't do it. Uh, Sometimes I've deceived myself out of greed But I've tried not to do horrible things. But it's absolutely true that for my own entertainment or for my own pleasure, I really don't tend to go to those big movies. Uh, I do other things completely. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Wallace Shawn. Do you enjoy being funny? Obviously. I mean, I don't know what the word funny means, but I, even when I haven't wanted to be funny since I was a boy, people have said, oh, he's funny. But I don't even, you know, it's an indefinable word, really. But I don't, to me, talking and being funny are sort of the same thing, almost. Thinking and being funny are almost the same thing. And I feel like when I'm watching you, especially as a performer,
0: one of the things that's special about your work is that you always bring a sense of the kind of joy of discovery of the language and maybe of the truth that's in it. You know, it's like a twinkle in the eye quality that a lot of people don't don't have or at least can't convey on screen. And it's a really, it's a really special, joyful thing. There's a certain joie de vivre as a performer that you bring to everything you do that I know brings me a lot of happiness.
3: Well, that's a lovely thing to say, quite incredible. I mean, I, I of course, actually love performing, so acting for me is, is uh, very pleasing. I mean, I, I thought, you know, I would spend my life at a desk... And it turns out I've had opportunities to do all these different crazy things and to explore different parts of myself, which is what an actor does. You may see the fact that I'm just feeling good about that activity.
0: (laughs) I mean, I feel like you're one of the first artists that I've interviewed in my, you know, 18 years of doing this who admits to enjoying their work. Um I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's a really that's a really lovely thing and you know even in um even in writing about the immensity of human suffering in night thoughts there is a feeling that you I, I felt reading your writing that there that you appreciated the beauty of giving these thoughts full consideration that engaging with them in a, in a full way even though they're brutal in some cases is in itself uh you know I mean I know that we that you stipulated it's dumb but that it's like art with like a capital A
3: art and that's an okay and good thing to try and do well for me writing is very pleasurable Obviously, it's not pleasurable to not feel that you are accomplishing what you would like to accomplish, and it's frustrating and sort of awful to feel that you are empty and are just a hollow person, which any writer probably feels fairly often. But on a good day, Writing for me is a very pleasurable activity, and playing with words and language is a very pleasurable activity. And I mean, I don't do it for the money. I'm doing it because I find it attractive, pleasurable, something that's fun to do. I mean, I, I'm not so richly rewarded for it that I would be doing it. To, for the, you know, cash rewards.
0: Well, I've taken up as much time as I possibly could of yours, and I'm really grateful for you, to you for talking with me. Thank you so much for doing this.
3: Well, it was fabulous to talk with you.
0: Wallace Shawn, everybody, one of the smartest people I've ever talked to. If you don't believe me, buy a copy of Night Thoughts. It's beautiful, and it's fascinating. Every week we like to wrap things up on Bullseye with a recommendation from me. It's the outshot. Most video games are games more than they are stories. If there's a narrative to them, it's kind of grafted on. Like, right now I'm playing this Batman game. I can tell you it feels amazing to zip around on the Gotham skyline. It is super fun to shoot batarangs at bad guys And honestly, I have probably put 20 hours into this game. I have no idea what the plot is. But I also just finished another game that's entirely different. It's called Firewatch. And it's almost purely narrative. It's a two-hander driven by a relationship. You're a guy in his late 30s whose wife has dementia. She's in a home and you decide to escape from your problems by taking a job as a park ranger, sitting in a watchtower in Wyoming, keeping your eye out for fires. The game starts with text on the screen, like a choose-your-own-adventure book. In five minutes, you fall in love, you get a dog, you lose your love to dementia, and then there you are, first person, alone, wandering through the wilderness, literally and figuratively. And that's the most action-oriented thing you do. You wander a bit, maybe open a gate, climb a rock. The game's breathtakingly beautiful. The look feels nostalgic, but unplaceably so, not exactly retro. The story's set in the mid-'80s, but the park looks a bit like a travel poster from the 60s, not in a kitschy way. It's just sort of golden. And spending time in the world is transporting. Maybe just because there aren't a lot of quiet video games. I mean, in Firewatch, you could spend an hour just watching a sunset. Anyways, you sit in this Firewatch tower. You have one friend. She's your boss, Delilah. She's not there with you. She's in a tower on the other side of the park. But you have a radio, and she has a radio. And so the two of you talk.
1: Hello, Two Forks Tower.
4: Um, hello? Whoever this is?
1: It's Henry, right? Yeah. I'm Delilah.
4: Yeah, that's what the guy said on the phone.
1: So, what's wrong with you? Excuse me? People take this job to get away from something. So what's wrong?
4: What's wrong with you?
1: That's a great idea. Go ahead.
4: Look, I just hiked for two days, so I don't really follow whatever it is you're doing right now.
1: You take a stab at what's wrong with me.
4: Fine, then can I... sleep? Forever?
1: Sure, buddy. Okay, now go ahead.
4: Okay, you're probably out here because nobody back home can stand you. Which, after this brief introduction, is not a big shock.
1: Ouch! Uh, I'll chalk that up to you being tired and grumpy.
4: Well, I'd better get some sleep then.
1: One sec. Now it's my turn.
4: Okay. Good night. Bye.
1: Let's see. I don't know anything about you. But nine times out of ten, folks out here simply got dumped.
0: Huh. Is that it?
1: Close. Good night. (laughs) Good night. Welcome to the job.
0: The game's interface is very simple. You can walk around, you can jog, you choose dialogue from a menu. In books, first-person narrative has an as-told-to quality... And second person never quite feels right. Why is a book telling you what to do, right? Firewatch engages the storytelling strength of a game. It immerses you completely, and you connect deeply with this character. When you walk and talk for someone, when you see from their eyes, you become them in a way that's unlike any other form of fiction. There's a lot of mundanity in Firewatch especially in the beginning, that just seems to strengthen it. And, you know, you talk to pass the time.
4: How many hikers go missing in the Shoshone?
1: More than none, unfortunately, with most of them being in this area. The thoroughfare, because it's so remote. Why?
4: I found an old flyer for a missing hiker. It just got me thinking, that's all. Like how you said one day you were talking to the Goodwins and then the next you weren't.
1: Ned Goodwin didn't get mauled by a bear or stuck in a ravine. He was just a PTSD'd a-hole who dragged his son out to do a job and realized it was a bad idea.
4: You really didn't like that guy, did you?
1: I don't know. I honestly... I just had a hard time talking to him. I mean, there are lookouts who seriously won't shut up, who call me about every little thing that pops into their head. And then there are those who just... Want to be left alone? He was the latter,
4: and I'm the former, aren't I? Well,
2: I didn't want to say anything.
4: Hmm. No, it's fine. I'll just uh, chuck my walkie-talkie into the river.
1: <laughs> oh, come on!
4: And uh, you'll never hear from me again.
1: Finally, peace and quiet. Woohoo!
0: As it turns out, there's something going wrong in the park. You figure that out pretty quick. Things are off kilter. Something's weird with Delilah too, but you also kind of like her. And as a fire starts to burn on the horizon, the stakes start to feel higher and higher. Your wandering eventually begets an investigation, some self-preservation, tension. You're working on a project.
1: Are you looking at the fire?
0: Okay,
4: I'm looking at it again.
1: I love how they look at night. During the day, it's just smoke, but when the sun is down, you can just get lost. Yeah. I'm glad you're here.
4: Why do you say that?
1: Because I do. I'm not crazy. I mean, we've had such a good time, right?
4: Yeah, I think so.
1: I don't talk to the other Lookouts as much as I talk to you. Not in the same way. And I know you're not really available, but... I want you to know, well... Maybe it'd be nice to get together at the end of the summer. Um, Look, we don't have to plan or even talk about it. I'm, I'm just having the thought. I wish I was over there.
0: I wish you were too. You only barely glimpse anyone, and you barely hear a voice besides Delilah's. The mystery builds and builds. You find an axe. You gather loose papers. You stumble on something horrible. And I don't want to ruin it all for you here, but I'll say this Firewatch is a story about isolation, and that's perfectly suited to gaming. It's a lonely story in a lonely medium. The act of playing the game, of course, is itself an escape. We play so that we can live in a world bounded by rules, because in real life, What rules we think we know get broken every day. We can't even really count on people we love because human beings change and die and get sick. We play games so that we can visit a simpler world with rules we know, and that's why our man goes to work in that fire station. He's looking to leave behind the confusion of his life. You see the fire, you call it in. You make yourself a sandwich. You write You read a book. You're all alone with your thoughts. You're far away from anyone who can throw you a curveball. You're far away from your pain. But in life, as in the game, escaping problems does not end them. And in Firewatch, in the end, you have to go home again, even if you're not quite sure what you'll face when you get there. That's my outshot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where, on my way to work the other day, I passed a giant flatbed truck full of concrete picnic tables. Why are they taking away our picnic tables? I honestly couldn't tell you. Maybe they're just cleaning them. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson, with help from Christian Duenas and Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow here at MaximumFun.org is Nick Liao. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music provided to us by Dan Wally, a.k.a. DJW. Our theme music was recorded by the Go Team and provided to us by Memphis Industries Records. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, they are all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And while you are at it, please check out that Bullseye page on Facebook. It's easy. Just load up the website Facebook and then type in Bullseye with Jesse Thorne, then click on like. You'll get a steady stream of stuff we think is interesting in the world. Plus, sneak previews about stuff that's coming up on Bullseye and uh, uh, Bullseye interviews as they come out. All kinds of neat stuff. Go go like Bullseye on Facebook. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.
1: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.